I love that commercial. Many of you might remember when that was out on TV. The, in all the research I've done, the best I can find is it's actually not based on a true story. What it's based on is Elizabeth Elliot told that parable in one of the books she wrote. So Elizabeth Elliot was Jim Elliot's wife, the missionary that was killed. And she told that parable, and at the end of it, this is what she had to say. She said, whatever our situation in life and history, however outrageous, however desperate, Whatever dry spell of the spirit, whatever dark night of the soul, God is whispering deep within our beings, don't quit. Keep playing. You are not alone. Together we will transform the broken patterns into a masterwork of my creative art. Together we will mesmerize the world with our song of peace. I like that parable. And I think the story that we're in the middle of, the woman at the well, is at many levels the same story of that parable of the little boy. This woman has been banging on the keys of life, trying to play a song that makes sense, that is beautiful, that satisfies her, yet all she seems to get is noise, with maybe an occasional hint of a familiar melody. Then Christ comes along and says, don't give up, keep playing. And he helps her do just that. Before he's through, her life starts to sound like beautiful music instead of banging on keys. So, in the last teaching, we saw Jesus tell the woman, go call your husband and come here. Okay? Teaching her that it is going and loving others that allows us to realize the spring of water welling up to eternal life is in us. It's as if he was saying, you have received love from me, now go and bring someone else to receive it. I am the living water. Bring someone else for you. He was guiding her to the mystery of the redemptive process. The mystery that it's about trusting we are loved by God and then loving others. The mystery that in the act of loving others, we learn to trust that we are loved by God. Our own salvation, our own redemption becomes real to us as we live into the grace that brings us our own salvation and our own redemption. We looked at that last week. So now, Jesus tells her, go and call your husband to come here. And this, unfortunately, presents the woman with a massive problem. I have no husband. And here begins for me the part of this story that is so much this beautiful parable of a master pianist coming alongside a little child and whispering, don't give up, keep playing. And then he sits down and he helps that child play. Here's what's very interesting to me. This part of the story is so often understood in a negative light. Maybe you've read some commentators or heard some teaching where they insist that Jesus was baiting the woman to purposefully expose her sinful lifestyle, to shame her into some sort of remorse, to scare her into repentance. But I personally don't think that comes from the text at all. At all. In fact, I think that view is more founded on an understanding of God that is less than a God full of grace, mercy, and unconditional love certainly less than 
the God of the cross that we claim to follow. Consider this fact. There is no verbal condemnation forthcoming from Jesus. No words of judgment at all, actually, for this woman, after she says things. He instead comments her on her compliments her on her honesty. You are right when you say you have no husband. Good job. Thanks for being honest with me. And then, as we've been reading together over the weeks, and we're going to start studying this, after this, he gently leads her into a conversation in which he reveals to this woman, this woman, some of the most profound teachings on worship in the entire New Testament, some of the most far-reaching commentary on the source of salvation in all of Scripture, and one of the most spectacular claims to divinity that he ever made to this woman. So if he was intent, so if his intent was to expose her for negative purposes, shame her for some superior nod to artificial morality, and condemn her as a worthless sinner, I don't think honoring her with such sublime revelation makes much sense, does it? Context. Context. I think he loved her. And in that love, he didn't see a, a woman living in sin, quote-unquote, but instead, to use today's image, he saw a child trying to play a piano. A child he loved and came close enough to to help. Of course, when she told him she had no husband, she was obviously trying to avoid the demands of grace. So go call your husband and come here. She said, well, I don't have a husband. She could have just got the guy she was looking with right now. But she was trying to avoid the demands of grace. And this is all the problem. This is the heart of the matter for all of us. This is where that proverbial chicken has to cross the road. And where many of us don't like to cross the road. Because grace is the man. Grace is very man. A God of grace properly understood is far more demanding than any other conceivable version of God. Which is why I think the gospel message has often been changed to one in which we transact with God. Or we have to take some heavenly entrance exam. And if we get the right answers to the theological questions, we get saved. Then we make ourselves feel better about this diminished gospel by creating an angry God from the cell phone. Yes, you know, Dave was so he missed it at first. Anyone else? Come on, self call up. Yeah. It's an angry We create this angry God. We dress him up with words like holiness and righteousness and sovereign and almighty, yet these fancy words we use carry far different meanings than the same words in Scripture. They mean different things. And then we ask seemingly brilliant questions to prove our point, defending our theology. If it's all about grace, why would anyone bother to be good? I know these questions get asked. They get asked me a lot because people know I'm always teaching about grace. If it's all about God forgiving us simply because He loves us, how will that make anyone stop being bad? Maybe you've heard these questions. Maybe you've asked them as you wrestle with what is God in essence and who is God in essence. But see, I don't think those are brilliant questions at all because I think they completely missed the point. 
I think they expose an emptiness to this lesser gospel of transactionalism. They expose that the gospel of transactionalism is not good news at all. And it really has nothing to do with this God who died for You see, to ask such questions reveals that our faith maybe is nothing more than an answer to a theological question and not a way of life. Grace is a way of life. So what I want to do is I'm going to let one of my favorite theologians explain what I'm trying to say. He says it much better than I could. This is a long quote, broken up, but I think it's worth taking the time and effort. It can be life-changing, I think, this quote. But it's demanding. Sin is not something the human race really has any choice about. The occasional sin, small s, we humans might manage to stop. Some of us might possibly avoid this lie or that adultery. But none of us will ever avoid that trust in ourselves and that distrust of anyone else that lies at the root of the world's problems. Those twin falsities of faith in self and unfaith in others, sin with a capital S, are as irremovable by human effort as they are unpardonable by human goodwill. And therefore, if they are ever to be removed or pardoned, it will only be by God's gift. Faith, you see, is simply taking his word about what really is and trying our best to get all the unreal nonsense out of our lives. I like that. So strictly speaking, faith does not save us. God does. But because faith, once given, inexorably leads us to try to stop contradicting what he has done, it becomes the only instrument of salvation that we need to lay a hand to. Okay. So, a better question is, if Christ has already done it all for me already, why shouldn't I live as if I trusted him? Here's where grace gets to men. If he has made me a member of the wedding of the Lamb, why shouldn't I act as if I'm at the party? If he has already reconciled both my wayward self and my equally difficult brother-in-law, or children, or wife, why shouldn't I at least try to act as if I trust him to have done just that and to let his reconciliation govern my actions and those relationships? Big, isn't it? So much different than the answer to a theological question. But maybe that's why we like theological questions. We don't have to deal with them. We don't have to live in harmony with our enemies. We can take them instead because we've got the right answer to the test. We're all set. Since he has already made me new, since there really isn't any of the old me around to get in my way anymore, why should I be so stupid as to try to go on living in terms of something that isn't even there? Oh, that just sums me up so much. 
The outrage of law violated is nothing compared to the white-hot fury of race. Grace is the men. If we really believe in grace, we should at least want to be trying to do it. I get not succeeding. And remember, we don't do it to earn anything. We're not transacting with God. He offers us life, freedom, living waters. It's grace. I think to spurn grace, we have to sort of ask ourselves a big question. But here is the beauty of this demand of grace. This white hot fury. Its focus is our redemption. So it never stops pursuing it. This is the best part. It never stops being the master pianist trying to help us make the symphony of our life. The parable that we looked at earlier. Jesus knew the woman was avoiding the demands of grace. Knew she was only telling half the truth. But still, he didn't scold her. Right? He just complimented her on her honesty. And kept pursuing her. So this revelation of her innermost story multiple husbands, the guy she's living with now, etc., etc. This is not about shame, death, and judgment and condemnation, but towards forgiveness and life. See, see, look how this worked. He starts by offering her living water, right? He said, I have living water. You would have asked me if you knew who you were talking to for living water. She claims to want it, sir, give me this water, but she doesn't quite fully understand why she wants it. So Jesus here points out the reality of her life, not in a judgmental way, but to tell her, this is why you need my water. This is why. Those wells never satisfy. Look, you've gone to plenty, and you keep going. Jesus does not care about the sin, small s, of whether or not she is married to the guy she's living with. He cares about the sin, capital S, that is killing her. Trusting herself. Preserving herself. Worshipping herself. That's what kills us. That's what kills the world. That's sin. So he knows that if he can get her to see that he even pardons that sin, the big one, the sin that's making her do all these other things, he can just get her to trust him, to believe in him. He knows eventually all the little S sin will take care of themselves. Grace has a funny way of making us all stop going to the little sins. It really does. But it's really hard to sleep with your neighbor's wife when you love him. But you can become a monk and turn your back on human sexuality. Do everything you can to protect yourself from it. You can still end up sleeping with your neighbor's wife if you don't want Grace has an amazing way of cleaning us out. That transaction and individualism will never do for us. Grace saves us. Grace transforms us. Grace does everything. 
Jesus is always concerned with the big story. That's why this doesn't concern him. That's why he took this woman, who's living with a man who's had five husbands, and basically made her the first apostle. Well, he's the first evangelist. Mary Magdalene was probably the first apostle. Because he's cares about the big story. Only we humans running away from grace are concerned with the little story. So if Jesus can get her to stop banging on the keys of life for a moment and hear the melody he's playing at her side, then maybe she'll start to play alongside his leading and her life will become simple. <clears throat> if we will stop banging on the keys of life for a moment, we stop going to wells that never satisfy, if we stop trusting ourselves, I think the same thing true for us too. And here's the best part. The best part of this whole thing. Well, I, was, I was so excited to show that earlier video about this parable. Get to this point of going at the well. Because the best part is this. No matter how badly we're doing this thing about life, or have done this thing called life. No matter how horribly we're doing this thing called faith, God is all the while right next 